Hello again, everyone. Please uh, do have your Bibles there at Genesis 9 to 11. So if you don't have a Bible, put up your hand and one of the people at the back will get one for you because I'm not just dealing with the Tower of Babel, I'm dealing with all those chapters. Uh, I hope you've uh, been enjoying the series on Genesis 1 to 12 we've been doing. I've been enjoying it, but then again, I've preached most of the sermons, so... um, I should enjoy it, but uh, I hope you've been enjoying it. I hope you found it helpful. Uh, I want to keep stressing it's all one story, so uh, if you've been away, if you've been on holidays, that sort of thing, and you've missed weeks, please go back uh, on the website and find the earlier sermons and listen to them. But uh, now, I'm going to pray as we start, so let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for these opening chapters of the Bible that are so foundational for us and help us understand who you are, uh, who we are. And what it means to live as people in your world. And so as we look at this rather sad episode this morning, uh, we pray that you will teach us from it. Uh, And in particular, we pray that uh, you will help us to learn uh, lessons that are relevant to us as people who live in this divided world today. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. When I was about 19, I had the uh, opportunity to go to America at one point and I was down in the very, very deep south, I was down in New Orleans and uh, there was a big American football game on Uh, and it was a a university game, so between two colleges, it was between the University of Florida and the State University of Florida or something like that, but anyway, because they were near neighbours, they obviously didn't like each other, so the whole city was taken over and the stadium, the Superdome, which seated 80,000 people, was sold out. Which blows your mind if you think about it. This is a college game, not even a professional game. So I thought, I want to see this. So I brought myself a, a ticket off a nice fellow with an English accent outside the ground uh, who assured me it was right on halfway and, and had a great view. So anyway, I, I went in with my ticket and as I went up the stairs, I needed oxygen to get to the seat and I needed binoculars and to lean around a pole to, to see the action. But, but as I got there... Uh, I said to the person who was sitting in the seat next to mine, G'day. I don't know why, when I'm overseas, I tend to be more Australian than when I'm in in Australia. But anyway, he responded to me in what I am sure was English, but I did not understand a word. His Southern American accent was just so thick that I just, in amongst the crowd noise, I just couldn't understand what he was saying. So I said, sorry, I, I didn't get that. And, and he said something again, even longer, and, this, and I really didn't understand it. So I, I did that thing where I sort of took a punt, and I just sort of smiled and laughed and said, yeah, yeah, that's right. Um, and I had obviously misread what, what he was saying. Uh, his face just went as dark as night. Uh, uh, you know, it was obviously, he was terribly offended. He just got up and he walked off, and he never came back. And there weren't any seats in this stuff, so I don't know where he went, but he never came back. To this day... I have no idea what he said to me. And I, I've often thought, I wonder if he said, you know, my mother is in hospital, but I'm still at the football or something. And I, yeah, good on you, you know. Uh, I will never know. Um, that is the difficulty of communication in our world, isn't it? That's the reality of communication. Uh, and this guy, and I, we even spoke the same language, in theory, at least. Uh, but that is the reality. Our world is divided by language and culture, and it leads to an inability to work together. At its worst, we see it in the things we see in Russia and the Ukraine or in in Israel this week. There are often misunderstandings and far, far worse. And today we're seeing where it all began with the story of the Tower of Babel, where God scattered people, where God divided people. And we've been dealing with the consequences of the sin of Babel ever since. 
Uh, so let's get into this famous story. Like I've kept saying, though, we under- to understand the story, you need to see where it fits in with the rest of what's going on. So we need to go back to the end of the story of Noah that we saw last week. So come back with me to chapter 9. So in chapter 9, God, what he does is he repeats his plans for humanity. So we saw last week the great flood where God judged the world and so then he effectively recreated the world. That's where we finished last week. So as Noah and his family, as they get off the ark, they're effectively in a new Eden at this point. It's a new beginning. Uh, They are the new Adam and Eve. And so God gives them the same task that he gave Adam right back at the beginning. So flick back chapter 9 verse 1, it says, God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Now it should be familiar to your ears because it's what God said back at the start of the Bible. Go down to verse 7, he says it again, he says, but you be fruitful and multiply, spread out over the earth and multiply on it. So there is humanity's marching orders at that point. That is what it meant to to obey God at that time, for humanity to spread out, multiply, and if you like, take over the world, settle the earth. And so Noah and his sons obeyed God. And that's what you see in chapter 10. So now flick over to chapter 10. Uh, Look with me from verse 1. It says, these are the family records of Noah's sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. They also had sons after the flood, Japheth's sons, Gomer, Magog, Madai, etc., etc., etc. Now, this is one of those chapters in the Bible where our, our eyes often glaze over. So you notice I had us read chapter 11, not chapter 10, for the Bible reading this morning. Uh, This is the chapter often in your Bible reading plan where you get to it and you just say, yeah, I've read it. You just sort of skim it over and get to the more interesting stuff. All these lists of names, so boring, so we think. Actually, this is really important because what this is, is Noah and his sons doing what God had called on them to do. This is humanity obeying God. This is what it looks like for humanity to multiply and spread out and and settle the world. Now, as I keep saying in this series, these chapters are history. It's about real people, but they're written in a a very symbolic, richly symbolic way. So, So all these people and all these nations mentioned here in this list are real. If you look down at verse 15, and one of the sons of Ham was Canaan. And his descendants, it says, were the Jebusites and the Amorites and others. They are the real people who several generations down the track, when the Israelites come into the promised land, they will be the people they fight with. They're going to be the people who attack God's people. And we'll see this next week, but it's from the sons of Shem that God would choose Abraham to build a people for his very own. Uh, And so that's why to this day, Jews are called Semites descendants of Shem. So all this week, you know, this week, sadly, we've been hearing people yell horrible anti-Semitic things at at, at protests. That is where that word comes from. They are anti the people of Shem, the descendants of Shem. So this is, this chapter is real. It's talking about real people in our world. You can go through there and you can find other people groups there in that chapter. But it doesn't capture every tribe or every nation. You know, the indigenous people of, of Australia, of North America, are not on that list. Don't try to force them in as sons of Ham or, or something like that. And I, I think the fact that it, it lists 70 descendants or 70 nations suggests that it's somewhat symbolic. 70 was the number of completeness, a lot, a complete large number, 7 times 10. Uh, so there's a symbolism to this is my point. 
But the idea is they did what they were told. They spread out and completely filled the earth. Now, I just want to pause at this point and make a couple of points out of this. We're about to get to the division of humanity in chapter 11. Before we do, this little chapter just reminds us of the sameness of humanity. Uh, Genesis 10 reminds us that all people are related. Uh, We are all the image bearers of God. We all come from the same source. We might be, you know, three millionth cousins, two million removed, if you like, but but we are all cousins. Whatever our colour, whatever our race, wherever we live on this earth, we all share the same DNA, scientifically speaking. We come from the same source, biblically speaking. Uh, This is why it is such a sin to kill any human being. Uh, Look at what God said to Noah. Go back to chapter 9, verse 6. Look at what God says to Noah. He says, whoever sheds man's blood, his blood will be shed by man. For God made man in his image. There there is actually some truth to that idea of the universal brotherhood or or sisterhood of man. Uh, More than that, though, it means that all people are given life by God and are accountable to God. For their life. People are not accidents. We, we are made in the image of God. We come from the life that was given by God in the very beginning. And so look at how Paul puts it in Acts chapter 17. Oh, our screens are working so you can see it. Acts chapter 17. It says, from one man, God, he has made every nationality to live over the whole earth and has determined their appointed times and the boundaries of where they live. He did this so that they might seek God and perhaps they might reach out and find him though he is not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and exist, as even some of your own poets have said, for we are also his offspring. Now we're going to see next week how God chose to work through one particular nation. We're going to see next week how God chose to work through the descendants of Shem, through the person of Abraham. But that doesn't change the fact that all people from all nations are special to God. It doesn't change the fact that God wants every person from every nation to reach out and find him and give him the honour and the glory he deserves. But sadly, that common humanity is broken at chapter 11. So come with me to our main point of our passage, the Tower of Babel, or humanity divided. Chapter 11, look from verse 1 at the start of the story. It says, At one time, the whole earth had the same language and vocabulary. Now, eagle-eyed readers will say, hang on, how can that be? Because chapter 10 said that all these nations had their own language. Uh, Well, this is explaining how that came about. So it's not in order, chronological order. Chapter 11 is explaining what's happened in chapter 10. And if you go back to chapter 10, verse 25, it tells us that this happened in the days of Peleg and Joktan, because that's when, if you look there, the earth was divided. So chapter 11 is like an individual episode of chapter 10. But at this point, it says humanity was all in common, one language, united, we might say. And you might think that is great. You might think that means no misunderstandings. That means they can join together and do great things for the glory of God. That would be true, except that they had something else in common. What else did they have in common? They're descendants of Adam. They're descendants of Noah. What they had in common is the reality of sin in every person's heart. And so here are the people spreading out over the earth. As they head eastwards, they find a valley in the land of Shinar. That's modern-day Iraq. That's what we're talking about near the Euphrates River. Very fertile area. And that's when the problem arises. 
And so I've called it the sin of Babel, human arrogance. So look at me from verse 3. They said to each other, come, let us make oven-fired bricks. They used brick for stone and asphalt for mortar. And they said, come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the sky. Let us make a name for ourselves, otherwise we will be scattered over the face of the whole earth. Now, what was the problem with this? Surely human ingenuity is a good thing, isn't it? You know, they, they worked out how to build bricks. They worked out how to put them together. They worked out how to build buildings. What's the problem? There's two problems. The first is less obvious, I think. The first problem is they say they want to build a city so that they won't be scattered over the face of the whole earth. Now, what's wrong with that? That There's nothing wrong with people living in a city. Praise God, I'm a city boy. I like my trips to the country to be as short and sweet as possible. And in time, God will establish his people in a great city, Jerusalem. God is not against cities, but at this point, remember, God had commanded people to do what? Spread out over the earth and multiply. This was actually humanity saying, get lost, God. This was the essence of sin. This was humanity saying, we know what you want us to do, but no, we'd rather live in a city. We know better. I wonder if it also expressed a lack of faith in God to to sort of protect them. See, we we gather in cities for convenience sake. The reason I like being a city person and a country person is I like going to the movies and I like going to the beach and I, I like going to all the convenient things and all the shops are available. In the ancient world, you didn't gather in cities so you had a movie theatre near you. You gathered in cities for security, to protect you against the wolves and the lions and perhaps, sadly, other people. See, it took faith, it took trust in God to, to protect them, to say, let's keep spreading out, let's not band together. I think this is the first example of that temptation to look for security in this world that is our temptation in the modern world. To to live, to build up treasures on earth, to, to store everything in barns, as Jesus puts it, rather than trust God to provide in the future and so be generous. See, I wonder if that was behind this sin of Babylon. But the second part is even more obvious. Look at verse 4 again. And they said, come, us, come let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the sky. Let us make a name for ourselves. I hope you see the problem. See, mankind is incredible. Humanity is, is incredible. It is absolutely amazing what humanity can do. We alone, of all the creatures, can do this. Humanity is different to the animals. Humanity is amazing. We can build cities. We can build towers taller than, than we can even imagine. What, what they built was probably the first of what we call a ziggurat, you know, like a pyramid with steps that goes up and up and up and up and up. And in fact, you can go and see where, where they, they think a tower like this was in the area of Babylon. Whether it was this one or a later one, who knows. But, but the intent was that their name would be glorified. The intent was that their name would be made great rather than that God's name would be glorified. And their intent was that they might join God in the heavens or perhaps displace God in the heavens. This was really just the first of all the man-made religions. It's just the same as every modern religion, which is an attempt to climb up to God, an attempt to get near to God rather than listen to the God who has revealed himself. And it was clear what drove them, as I said, it was desire for their own glory. We're made to bring glory to God, we're made to make man's name great, but they wanted their name to be great. This was just Adam's sin played out again. Remember, if you eat the fruit, you can be like God. 
They're saying, we want to be like God. Human beings can do wonderful things. God wants us to do wonderful things. But when it leads to us being glorified rather than God, it is sin. I know the world mocks it, but that's why it's so wonderful when, you know, the actor collecting the Oscar or the, the Olympian receiving their gold medal, or the politician who wins the election, when they pause and say, I give the glory to Jesus. I know the world mocks it and, and people write in the newspaper, oh, was Jesus there to stop the other person beating you in the race? Or was Jesus there to stop the... And, and they mock it. But I actually think it's beautiful because they're recognising even the greatest of human accomplishments, the glory is for one greater than them. But of course, that's the exception. The sin of Babel is alive and well in our world, isn't it? Uh, At an international level, it's what drives dictators to invade other countries and then build massive statues of themselves. But I'm more worried about it at the personal level. The sin of Babel is alive right here in my heart. At a personal level, it's what drives every one of us to seek the praise of men rather than the praise of God. Well, come to God's response, verse 5. Through uh, this series, I keep talking about how beautifully written these stories are in their original language uh, and and how they draw the reader in to to focus on certain verses. That verse here is actually verse 5. The the story is designed to get you to look at verse 5. And I love this verse because it captures the scorn God has for even the most impressive attempts of humanity to undercut him. I love the way Matthew read it before. I I detected scorn in his voice as he read this verse. Look at at verse 5. It says, Then the Lord came down to look over the city and the tower that the men were building. Now understand this. God doesn't need to come down. God is not a a person. God is spirit. God is all-seeing. God is all-knowing. God can see this perfectly well. He knows how many hairs there are on your head. He knows when a sparrow falls from the sky. So why does it put it that way? It's to capture the fact that the greatest thing humanity can come up with up to that point is microscopic to God. To God, it's like a pimple on the face of the earth. Look at Isaiah chapter 40, verse 22. It says, God is enthroned above the circle of the earth. Its inhabitants are like grasshoppers. See, that's the reality of God. This story is so beautifully written, it's capturing the scorn of God. Dare I say it, the sarcasm of God. Where's that tower that you keep telling me about? Where's that tower that's meant to have joined me in the heavens? Can you tell me, where is it poking through? I can't see it. Where is it again? That, that thing down there. Are you serious? It makes me think of Psalm 2 when it talks about the schemes of man against God and his anointed. It says, the one enthroned in heaven laughs. The Lord ridicules them. Remember this, God is not scared by human sin. God is not put off and worried by human sin. God is grieved terribly by human sin, but we are no threat to God. God laughs. It's sad laughter, it's ironic laughter, but God laughs at our feeble efforts to seek our own glory. But at this point, God also acts. So I've called it God's judgment and God's grace. Come with me to verses 6 to 9. Look to verse 6. The Lord said, If they have begun to do this as one people, all having the same language, then nothing they plan to do will be impossible for them. Again, God God is not concerned for himself here. He's not threatened. Oh no, they might succeed if I don't do something. He's concerned for humanity. He's concerned for what humanity will do to each other and to the world if we are united in our sin. It's funny, we think that unity is always a good thing. 
But actually, when sinful human beings get together without God in the picture, sin gets worse. If all of humanity was united without God, there is no telling what evil we would do. You actually see this in communism. The, the idea that, that everyone would gather together and share everything in a, in a wonderful socialist state where there are no classes and no private wealth, it sounds wonderful in theory, but it doesn't account for human sin. You see, and so where does it end up? Where did it end up in the Soviet Union? With powerful people rising to the top, perpetuating evil and awful atrocities on the people underneath them. And it always excludes God and it always persecutes people who want to find God. Be very careful in longing for unity in our world, at least that is a unity without God. So God acts to divide humanity. Look from verse 7. It says, come, let us go down there and confuse their language so they will not understand one another's speech. So from there, the Lord scattered them over the face of the whole earth and they stopped building the city. Therefore, its name is called Babylon, for there the Lord confused the language of the whole earth, and from there the Lord scattered them over the face of the whole earth. The name Babel or Babylon is a wonderful play on words. In the Hebrew, it's connected to the verb to confuse, and that's carried through to English. It's where we get our English word of babbling on from. Uh, but in time, in the language of the Babylonians, it meant the gate of the gods. So I hope you see the wonderful irony. They tried to build a gate to the gods, actually they ended up babbling. Now, what God does here is an act of judgment. God scatters humanity, God divides humanity. This is God's judgment, but it's also an act of grace. See, it's because God does this that chapter 10 could happen. It's because God does this that humanity actually does what we're meant to do. Because of this, humanity goes and settles the earth like God had commanded. But more than that, as I alluded to before, it limits the power of human sin. It's funny, we think that all the different nations of the earth with all their different leaders is the cause of our problems and we've seen that at its worst this week. But actually it would be even worse if God hadn't done this because it just limits the damage sinful people can do. Just imagine if Vladimir Putin didn't just control Russia. See, that's the reality without the Tower of Babel. People love this idea that if there was just, you know, John Lennon, imagine it. Imagine there's just one world and one government and, and, and the world would be a bit... Yes, it would be beautiful if we were united under God. Yes, it would be beautiful if Jesus is the king, but not if we're united under someone like me. Not if we're united under sinful humanity. God's scattering is both judgment and grace. And that leads us to God's answer to Babylon. God's answer to the fractured nature of our world is not that humanity should just get its act together and be united again. No, God's answer is that all humanity should be united in worshipping God. That's the answer. In the Old Testament, prophet Zephaniah, one of the less read prophets of the Old Testament, so I thought I'd use him, promised one day Babel would be reversed. Look at what he said, Zephaniah chapter 3 verse 9. He says, for I will then restore pure speech to the people so that all of them may call on the name of Yahweh and serve him with a single purpose. And when was Zephaniah's prophecy fulfilled? When Jesus came, what happened after his death and resurrection? The miracle of Pentecost, where people from all over the world heard the gospel in their own language 
And from that day on, Christians have taken the gospel to people from every language, every tribe, every nation. Often Christians will spend years learning a language so they can go and share the gospel with people. The, the McDowell's, who we support in Paraguay, have gone to Paraguay and, and they've learnt Spanish, but then they've had to learn another language as well that I can't even pronounce, so that just so they can declare the gospel to people so that those people can praise God in their own tongue. Isn't that amazing? Our, our world would say, just make everyone speak English or, or some other language, but no, 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 Christians say, I'm going to go, I'm going to learn your language so that I can sh- share the best news ever with you in your tongue. And so now there are people who praise the name of Jesus in English and Spanish and French and Mandarin and Cantonese and Hindi and Urdu and in indigenous languages here in Australia. God doesn't unify humanity by making us all the same. He doesn't unify humanity by destroying our differences. He unifies us by bringing us together through our common faith in Jesus. Now, yes, sadly, the church fails at points and it divides at points and it is always sad when Christians divide. But even so, there is nothing in all of history that compares to the Christian church, that compares to what we have here, actually, where people from every nation on earth are united in worshipping the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. That is God undoing Babel and we are a part of that. And we'll see that most wonderfully when Christ returns and we stand side by side with people from every nation and every tribe and every tongue declaring God's praises in our own language. We heard it in the book of Revelation in our second reading before. I've got a quote here from Revelation chapter 7. Look with me. It says, After this I looked and there was a vast multitude from every nation, tribe, people and language, which no one could number, standing before the throne and before the Lamb. They were robed in white with palm branches in their hands. Salvation belongs to our God who is seated on the throne and to the Lamb. And they cried out in a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who is seated on the throne and to the Lamb. Won't it be wonderful? Come Lord Jesus. There's the answer to Babel. The answer to Babel is preach the gospel so that all people can come to know Jesus and find the true unity that matters. And then come Lord Jesus so that humanity's divisions might be gone once and for all and people will declare God's praises in every tongue. Well, as I finish, we are tempted by the sins of Babel every day. We're tempted by that desire to be our own boss. We're tempted by that desire to make our own decisions, to seek our own security, to make our own name great, to seek the praise of others rather than the praise of God. That, that, des- that desire to seek security in this world rather than listening to God, that desire to make ourselves the centre rather than God, the desire to seek after our own glory. And the answer to the sin of Babel is really simple. Stop searching for your identity in all those places and just trust in Jesus. As Jesus said, seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. The irony then is we get the other things as well. We want to be people who live for the glory of Jesus. We want to be people who live for his glory not for our own. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, uh, it grieves us that our world is divided, but Father, we know the reality of the sinful human heart, and so we long for the true unity, not a Babylonian unity, the true unity that comes through every person hearing the good news of Jesus, putting their faith in Him, 
and coming to know him as their Lord and Saviour. And we look forward to that day when we will stand in the heavens with people from every nation on earth and declare your praises. In the meantime, Father, we pray that we would put to death the sin of Babel in our own hearts and instead we would seek your glory always. In Jesus' name, amen.